Welcome to The Words of Wesleyan, a podcast from the Wesleyan University Shapiro Center for Writing about the words and people that shape our community. On today's episode, we're talking to two people involved in scientific work on campus. First, we're speaking with Professor Fred Cohen, the Huffington Foundation Professor in the College of the Environment, a Professor of Biology, Professor of Environmental Studies, and a Professor of Integrative Sciences. Next, we'll hear from one of Professor Cohen's students, Isaac Thorman. He's a neuroscience and behavior major and chemistry minor who works within the Yale Ear Lab studying proteins related to hearing loss. Each of them will read a segment from a written work which has been influential for them, and then speak about the role of writing in their studies and lives. Now, let's hear from Professor Fred Cohen. I'm Fred Cohen in the Department of Biology, also the College of the Environment, and I'm a microbial ecologist. I study the origins of bacterial and viral species, and I would say that I am a lifelong fan of interesting writing. Hmm. Well, we're also big fans of that on the show as well. Uh, What are you going to be reading for us today? Well, I'm going to read a passage from Steppenwolf. And this is something that I I read for the first time when I was in graduate school in the mid-1970s. And the whole book was interesting to me. And honestly, I couldn't tell you too much about the book as a whole, but there was this one passage Uh, I guess we'd call it the chess player passage, um, just before the taming of the Steppenwolf, for those of you who have memorized every part of this book. And when I read this, I just thought, this speaks to me. It it really had to do with the thesis, the PhD thesis I was working on at the time. And it just turns out that the message from it has just been important over the 40 plus years. Wow. Whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and get started with your reading. Okay, so yeah, as I mentioned, this is um, this is a part toward the end of Steppenwolf, and I'll call it the part guidance in the building up of the personality, success guaranteed. So um, I'm going to read a little bit, then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to skip because it has more to do with psychology, and I'm going to deal with the biology part. Okay, all right. So here I'm going to start. I am a chess player. Do you wish for instruction in the building up of the personality? Yes, please. Then be so kind as to place a few dozen of your pieces at my disposal. My pieces? Of the pieces into which you saw your so-called personality broken up. I can't play without pieces. He held up a glass to me, and again, I saw the unity of my personality broken up into my many selves, whose numbers seemed even to have increased. The pieces were now, however, very small, about the size of chessmen. And then I'll interrupt and say that he's got about a page here that deals with the idea of the unity of a personality is false, that we're really better off acknowledging that we're all the amalgam of many souls and minds. Now, I don't care about that. That's for people across (laughs) the street. But um, for the biologists and evolutionary biologists, I want to continue here. So this has to do with what goes on with these chess pieces. Okay, I'll continue. With a sure and silent touch of his clever fingers, he took hold of my pieces, all the old men and young men and children and women, cheerful and sad, strong and weak, nimble and clumsy, and swiftly arranged them on his board for a game. At once they formed themselves into groups and families, games and battles, 
friendships and enmities, making a small world. For a while, he let this lively and yet orderly world go through its evolutions before my enraptured eyes in play and strife, making treaties and fighting battles, wooing, marrying, and multiplying. It was indeed a crowded stage, a moving, breathless drama. Then he passed his hand swiftly over the board and gently swept all the pieces into a heap and meditatively, with an artist's skill, made up a new game of the same pieces with quite other groupings, relationships, and entanglements. The second game had an affinity with the first. It was the same world built of the same material, but the key was different. The time changed. The motif was differently given out and the situations differently presented. And in this fashion, the clever architect built up one game after another out of the figures, each of which was a bit of myself. And every game had a distant resemblance to every other. Each belonged recognizably to the same world and acknowledged a common origin, yet each was entirely new. This is the art of life, he said dreamily. And I'll stop there. Of course, it goes on, it's wonderful. Wow. But I, I just say that I picked this because it just spoke to me about the way I see the evolution of life in general, and in particular, what I was working on as a PhD student at the time. Hmm. Yeah, so that first time that you read that piece, which is so striking and just really touches something so true. When you read that for the first time as a PhD student, what kind of connections were coming to your mind? What were you thinking when you read that? Well, I wasn't thinking where I think Hermann Hesse wanted me to go because <laughs> you know, he was thinking about, it was significant that it was all part of his personality was the source mm -hmm. of the pieces, you know? Uh, but to me, what I cared about is that I have a set of pieces, I'm putting them in one environment and I'm watching what they will do over time, how, they, how the situation evolves. And then that you could take the same material put it in the same environment, let it evolve under the same circumstances and get a different result. And this is exactly what I was working on as a PhD student, mm. that I was interested in um, whether, uh, let's say the same population over, say like of fruit flies, I was working with fruit flies at the time. If the same population of fruit flies, if put in the same environmental challenge, would they tend to evolve in a different way every time. And related to that, if I took different populations of the same species, so this might be different populations of the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster from San Diego and Northern California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, would they tend to evolve, would, each, would they each tend to evolve in a different way, owing to genetic differences that were there. And this was part of an idea that I was developing at the time that natural selection that's exactly the same being imposed on different populations with their genetic differences would actually cause them to diversify more than they would ordinarily. And I call this genetic divergence under uniform selection. That was the title of my thesis. So, I just thought it was just great to see a, an almost poetic version of my thesis in, in Steppenwolf. <clears throat> and I'll say that one of my, 
I mean, I don't really have very many regrets in my life, but one of my regrets is that when I came across this early on in my thesis work, I had intended to make this section the frontispiece of my thesis. Well, by the time I got through the years of doing the artificial selection that I was doing and wrote the thesis and all that, I completely forgot about um, what my intention was, but I have not <laughs> forgotten this section. And here it is for us today. And we're talking about it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's really powerful, I think, to come across the, some of those same truths in poetic language that you're simultaneously exploring in scientific language. Would you say that, you know, in your life as a scientist and a reader, do you come across moments like that often? Um, and what is it like when you do encounter those places where the poetic and the scientific overlap? Well, I guess I, guess I wish it was more often Otherwise, I wouldn't be going back 45 years of my past to find a reading for you. <laughs> but, but the funny thing is, when you invited me to do this and choose something important to you, this is just what came to mind. So I would say, you know, I, I read a lots of different things. I, I, read, I read novels. I read, I read science. I read a lot of history, a lot of infectious disease literature. And... I just love it when the writer makes a point of trying to interest me. Beyond, beyond in explaining what their main point is, is just trying to make a connection to the way we think about the way the world works. If there's, you know, in my teaching, which I guess you could think of as writing in a way, but in my teaching, I'm always trying to make connections to, um, the science from you know what might be in the world of the students, and I think it's important for writers to do that. Mm. Yeah, making those connections and also asking those questions. Um, I feel like sometimes a novel, it's similarly to the way one might approach uh, like a scientific paper, you might go into it saying, I have this question that I'm interested in exploring further. And I, I'm curious about the ways that those processes overlap, you know, the process of trying to create a novel and the process of trying to, you know, create a scientific paper where, you know, in both cases, you're sitting down and you say, I have a question about how the world works. I'm curious about the overlap between those two processes. Right. I mean, to me, I just, <clears throat> I mean, I would say that the inspiration generally for a, embarking on a scientific program to me generally comes out of the science or it might come, you know, as I'm working more toward public health, it might come out of maybe not so much science, but, um, but just a public health problem that we have. Mm -hmm. It doesn't usually come from literature. I mean, like, like imaginative literature that I've read. I mean, but I think it is incumbent on us as scientists to try to engage uh, people who don't know about our work by by trying to write the work in a way that will engage them. Yeah. Yeah. And in your life as a scientist, what kind of a role does writing play for you? Well, we write for a living, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, we write for a living. I would say I've, I might probably do more <clears throat> uh, review writing than than many people. You know, we have a, a significant literature that we've contributed in experiments, but a lot of it is trying to 
to make connections with um, with different parts of biology and and beyond biology. So, to um, let's see, yeah, I mean, there are some <coughs> excuse me, there are some things that just strike one. I think just looking at the world and saying somebody's got to research this. And it turns out that something this doesn't really deal with writing, but has to do with how I got interested in something. So in our work, we are interested in how much ecological, how much important ecological diversity is packed within a species taxon. So when we talk about our bacterium, Bacillus subtilis from desert soils, there is a species taxon that is, I'm spreading my arms apart really big. So <laughs> it's defined really broadly lot of ecological diversity within what we call a species, which I think does a disservice to people that want to understand all the diversity. It's like if you, you, you study this one species, okay, you've looked at one, what we call ecotype, one population, you feel, okay, you've done the whole thing because it's all called the same thing. So this gets to be a problem in public health, I think, when you extend this to virology, that it turns out viruses are defined in the same way. It's just really broadly defined species taxa. So one of the, one of the problems with this is that um, there are, and now that we're in this pandemic, we can say there are cases where what has been defined as the same species is, um, is really quite diverse. So I'll give you an example. We have SARS, we now call it SARS-1 from 2003. That's a very interesting virus. We were able to to totally eradicate it because of certain, certain problems that it had in transmitting, but it was very deadly. Now we have SARS-2, which is considered the same species. And I have a problem with that because it means that when you're going about the world, discovering new viruses, trying to protect humanity from any new virus that might come about, um, if we're gonna be in a position to maybe discover a particular virus and then realize that it's a member of a species already been described, we say, oh, been there, done that, and then we don't go on and add it to our, our compendium of all these viruses. So this actually relates to what we do, and what most of what we do has to do with discovering very closely related micro microbial populations, whether, my, whether they're bacterial or viral. And I'll have I'll just get back into writing. I'm sorry. Uh, I think um, <laughs> you decide what you want to do with this. But what I'm trying to say is that the motivations for our work really have largely come from, from the science itself. And when I write this stuff, I try to, in my writing, I try to connect people to the, um, the dangers of not really seeing um, the science correctly, like how it can mm. lead to uh, depths, how we can get maybe the wrong message and how we ought to be thinking about SARS-2 based on incorrect um, extensions of our knowledge from SARS-1. So, you know, I'm always trying to do that, trying to make connections for people. Yeah, I find it really interesting what you were talking about, the amount of diversity within a single species, um, because something that we talk about sometimes within um, fiction workshops, especially in my experience, is that, you know, two writers who are very similar, maybe who come from the same hometown, who have the same background, they could write an identical story where like a man goes to a store and 
even if you know you have these writers who are so similar on the surface, they would write totally different stories about the same thing. And I think there is something to the idea that you can't necessarily treat every member of the same species like they're the same because there is so much diversity. And I think that's true within writing as well, that like there's also a diversity of thought and there's a diversity of ways of being. And I think writing helps to distinguish those different perspectives so that, you know, you're not treating every member of a single group as if they're the same because you've got different people writing from like different aspects of those perspectives. Yeah, that is so true. And especially if we will allow lecturing to be kind of like writing, because we say we <laughs> lecture, right? Okay. So for example, when the various ecology evolution members of our department teach the same three, same thing in intro bio, which I'm doing now, and we each try to set up the introduction to ecology and evolution as a never ending story based on our own experiences with the science. And it's just this narrative that each of us has that will bring all these points that we're all trying to include in the story, but we do it in a different way, emphasizing different things. And I, I just take some pride in each of us doing it in our own way to make it a personal connection with our students. Mm. Yeah, it's exciting to see, you know? It's great <laughs> that there well, are so many different perspectives. From a lecture um, from Richard Edelstein, <clears throat> when he was he was explaining to us, he was explaining to us <clears throat> in a lecture to faculty about uh, what it takes to be a great teacher, and he's widely recognized as one of the great teachers on campus. <clears throat> and he said one of the things is don't teach from the textbook, make it your own story. And I had been doing that for decades when I heard this, and I thought, oh. I felt licensed that I, I actually am doing the right thing. I'm not like doing an abuse of power in, in teaching it my own way. We don't have to. I mean, it's so thank you, Richard. And um, I think that's really the way we have to do all of our writing, just to put it in the perspective of what we know, what we, what we can connect with. And I, I would just give another thing, which um, it, it's one of the things I love about Wesleyan actually. And this has to do that I, I tell people, people that are interested in the university, either as coming as a, a professor or as a student, that I really enjoy the, the right braininess of the place. And I explain to people, well, you know, it's not like, like this is rumor about right brain. Well, that's what artists do. But no, what right brain really is, is that it has to do with making connections. The idea that you have a particular problem in front of you and you have a lot of knowledge of different kinds. Maybe in my case, it's history and genetics and ecology and um, behavior. And you put all these things together, you have this problem. Then you do a little warm shower thinking and you bring all this stuff together and put it together in some novel way. And we do that as a faculty, as a faculty, we really do that. And I think we, our students are kind of self-selected to come here in that way. But once they're here, we kind of teach them to do that, and I just can't help but teach that when I teach my classes. And so it's something that I'm, I'm very comfortable with here, and I think we do a very good job of helping the students make connections for themselves within what they, within what they know. Yeah, all right, well, I will finish this out with one last question. Um, when you 
have those moments or your students have those moments of making connections, whether that's in a classroom or, you know, on a page reading Steppenwolf 45 years ago during your PhD thesis, what does that feel like? You know, what is that experience like the moment when a new connection is suddenly formed and maybe the world seems a little different all of a sudden? Well, in my case, I, I have a, an assignment in my gen ed class, uh, which is global change and infectious disease. We have a lot of students going through that. And so they have an assignment, this op-ed piece, and they, we don't put any constraints on it except it has to do with global change and infectious disease. And I'm just so proud of what they come up with. I mean, so many, I mean, some of them are more straightforward. Some are clearly drawing from a lot of knowledge from philosophy and ethics, and some are just sort of mainstream public health. And it's just, I'll say, I take pride in what they have accomplished. So many of them have succeeded in getting their op-eds published. I think there were I think 26 or 27 of the students out of the 200 that managed to get their, their pieces published. And I just think that when they can do that and, and, and they, they get, these things get accepted because they're original. And mm -hmm. I've just take the pride in that, you know, I've just given them, I mean, I haven't contributed to their originality, but what I've done is made them understand that they are capable of making novel connections and putting something together that a newspaper would want to, to publish. Well. All right, that's about our time. But thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. It was so lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk with you and uh, I enjoyed it. That was Professor Fred Cohen, a professor of biology, environmental studies, and integrated sciences. Next, we'll be hearing from one of his students and thesis advisees, Isaac Thorman. Here's what Isaac had to say about his experiences with Professor Cohen. Fred is a professor who teaches both science and writing. In our conversations, we often discuss how we can infuse emotion into our scientific writing. He's a firm believer in creativity and craft. Here's Wesleyan senior Isaac Thorman. My name is Isaac Thorman. Uh, I'm a senior neuroscience and behavior major and a chemistry minor. Um, my research in the Yale Ear Lab focuses on the cochlear amplifier mechanism, um, which is a for, uh, is underlies a form of congenital deafness, um, and we study the ways uh, in which mutations of that protein alter its function uh, in order to better understand its structure uh, and its domains. All right, great. Thank you so much. And what piece are you going to be reading for us today? I'll be reading the opening paragraphs of Philip K. Dick's The Eyes Have It. All right, great. Whenever you're ready. It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first person to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment, I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. 
After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties not indigenous to Earth. A species, I hasten to point out, customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything and was taking it in stride. The line, and I shudder, the line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, his eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me. I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface. Rather rapidly, apparently. No one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later, the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial. Yet to the characters in the book, it was perfectly natural, which suggested they belonged to the same species. Great job, Isaac. Thank you so much. So tell me a little bit more about this piece. What made you pick it? Um, I think this piece is... Uh, very indicative of what I appreciate in a lot of science fiction literature, um, and that it takes something so small, um, something as seemingly mundane as a phrase, his eyes slowly roved about the room. And we all know that, you know, no eyes are being detached from someone's head and making their own way about the room. Um, but it, it, the speculations that it brings up um, are very much based in reality. Uh, and I think that it speaks more to maybe what we can consider reality than something that's so real um, as talking about the, the even more commonplace. Um, and so I think that this piece uh, is a very funny take on um, what we perceive as normal language. Um, throughout the rest of the piece, the protagonist goes on to um, watch the uh, characters in the story split themselves into uh, multiple organisms uh, as part of their group goes to the movies and Park goes to a cafe. Um, and it concludes when he races back into the house um, and just wants to escape the whole thing. And he says in his last lines, I just don't have the stomach for it. Um, and it's those kinds of observations about the world that I, I find to be so um, poignant about Philip K. Dick and, and a lot of these classical authors. Um, and I think that they, they do such an excellent job characterizing the world around them. Mm. When did you first start getting into sci-fi and authors like Philip K. Dick and some of his contemporaries? Um, growing up, I really hated reading. Uh, I didn't enjoy the books I read in school. Um, my parents always insisted that I read for half an hour a day, um, but were very controlling over the types of books I was allowed to read. Uh, and so it really wasn't until uh, 2016, I had just graduated from high school um, and had a, a pretty terrible concussion that resulting in, in my missing a year of school. Um, 
and I really was not able to physically read. And I started listening to audiobooks. Um, and at the time, I was um, working at, or I was in rehab at hospital for special surgery about four days a week. Um, and it would take me about 40 minutes to get there and back. And so I, I would have these audiobooks going on my phone as I was on the subway up and back. Um, and I started to see um, what, you know, how reading appeals to people. And as I, um, I, I continued listening to audiobooks um, to this day, I, I listen to more audiobooks than I do read. Uh, I, um, I think that it's, it's a very, um, it allows you to detach from reality. Um, and I, I think we all love to imagine the future as this beautiful paradise or, or this horrible place. Um, but I think that when a, a top flight author takes an informed stab at what they think the future will hold, um, it's usually um, almost imperceptibly different from the present. Um, and the great example of that is Black Mirror on Netflix. Um, where in each episode they take one individual piece of, of technology or of culture and they, they amplify it. Um, and so I think that in many of the classical works of science fiction, for example, Foundation, we really see things like that. Um, in Foundation, Isaac Asimov proposes this theory of psychohistory, um, and it's based on the gas law and that we can't predict the behavior of an individual atom or an individual molecule as it floats around the room. Um, but we can predict the behavior of a group um, when we get the sample size large enough. And we can do that same thing when we get to a size of human beings that are large enough. Um, and using the, the calculus of psychohistory, the, um, the society, the foundation, um, is tasked with reducing the 30,000-year interregnum between the fall of the first galactic empire and the creation of the second, uh, a time that is supposed to be filled with evil and darkness and uh, a return to um, you know, Stone Age living conditions, um, they're tasked with reducing that 30,000 year interregnum down to a single thousand years using the science of psychohistory. Um, and I think that even though this, is, uh, this takes place about 25,000 years in the future, the problems that they face are very much uh, rooted in the present. They're problems of diplomacy and of international trade. Um, and of, of military conquest and of what makes uh, a government an effective ruling force. Um, and as we move through his works and we see um, the first foundation uh, and the second foundation and Gaia try to vie for power in the galaxy, um, we see Asimov asking the, the fundamental question of what does it mean to be human? Um, and these things are are done in such a way that it's, you know, I, I have never traveled by spaceship. I have never gone through hyperspace, but I, I can, the, the experiences of the characters are so similar um, to what we experience every day. And, and the problems that are faced are so similar um, that it's really, um, you know, it's obviously a work of fiction. None of this has happened, but it's, it becomes more realistic than um, things that try to embody the present. Mm -hmm. So you're clearly kind of an avid reader, but you're also a scientist. So I'm curious about the role that writing plays and the written word plays in your life. 
both as a reader and as someone who is engaged in scientific research? Um, I definitely think um, that the, the, there's a great quote that um, in baseball, the best thing an umpire can be is forgettable. Um, and I don't think that that's true about written writing, um, but I think that it's sort of true in that uh, the writing should almost transcend the page and, and that it, um, whether I'm reading uh, a story like The Eyes Have It or whether I'm reading a paper about um, molecular physiology in the inner ear, uh, the actual words on the page, you know, the best thing they can do is not hinder your understanding. Um, and to to be able to move through a manuscript, uh, a, a research publication, or a, a work of science fiction, um, I think that the the role of the written word is to bring the reader into the mindset of the author. Um, and so, as I um, as I start working on my own publications, I often think of um, what are what are the facts that the reader needs in order to draw the conclusions that I've drawn? Um, and something that I've struggled with is certainly seeing um, the, the connections between these very uh, empirical types of writing and these more uh, creative types of writing. Mm -hmm. um, but the more that I've, I've looked into actually creating both kinds on my own, um, the more I've seen them as, as almost one and the same in that the, the concepts are just as much needed to be clarified and, and that, um, even though we might be uh, in one case talking about different um, the intracellular and extracellular domains of Preston or the uh, the ways in which uh, the great traitor princes, princes of the foundation um, influenced the development of Terminus into a, a galactic empire. Um, we really are talking about the same things and that's, that's just communicating an emotion and a feeling into your reader. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think there's a magic bullet of how to do that. I think that to each field, there's a lot of, of unique qualities um, and certainly something that's, that's unique to uh, the, the scientific writing that I encounter is that you have the aid of figures and pictures um, that we don't necessarily have uh, in a novel. You know, when you read a novel, it's often not um, full of maps and definitions and things. Um, whereas when I'm, uh, reading a, a study of the brain, I can look at a figure of, of how the different portions connect to each other. Um, and so in that way, uh, the task is very different. Um, and the, the task is complicated by what tools are available. Um, and so I, uh, I don't think I have anything else to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and when you think about good writing and you think about whatever that means, you know, whether it is fiction, whether it is these scientific journals, how does it feel when you come across writing that just makes you go, wow? I think that they're very different in those two forms. I think that um, when I come across a great, a well-written uh, publication, the the writing is so um, straightforward as to fade from the page, and that's all that's left mm. is the conclusions that are drawn from it, and that um, each sentence, each phrase, each term is so clearly defined. Uh, the logic is so easily followed um, that there is 
there's nothing hindering a person's understanding and that, um, you know, you, you don't need to understand the actual field and the, and the specific specialty, um, but just reading down the words of the page, the meaning flows out of it. Um, the, the job of the fiction writer is much harder in that the meanings are often less clear. The stories are not linear. Uh, at least if they are, it's probably going to be a little bit boring. Um, there's, there's more uh, obfuscation and there's more withholding and that, um, there's, there's many different things expected from the reader and that in, in creative and science fiction writing, um, the purpose is not to understand the field better. I don't pick up foundation because I want to better understand the mathematics of psychohistory that would not obviously make any sense. It's fiction. Um, but it's, um, I forgot the question. Oh my God. <laughs> How does it make you feel? How does it make me feel? Um, it gets into my head. Um, and I, I, I certainly read every day before I go to bed. Um, but the biggest time that I spend, uh, is when I'm driving, listening to audiobooks, and at some point it stops being me listening to uh, the actor reading me the story, and more the the story just taking place in my head. Yeah. Um, and at that point, um, usually it's not the safest for driving, so I don't recommend that. Um, but it it makes you feel um, one with the story, uh, as if it's it's not being read to you, but as if you're a part of it. Um, and I, I certainly don't know how that's done. I can't, I can't put my finger on, on a, a specific phrase or, uh, any particular quote that's just there. Um, but it, it makes you feel like you are a part of the story being told. Thank you so much for that, Isaac. I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Isaac Thorman, a Wesleyan senior majoring in neuroscience and behavior with a chemistry minor. Thanks for listening to The Words of Wesleyan. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate all of your support and feel free to reach out to us anytime at ShapiroWritingCenter at gmail.com. The Words of Wesleyan is produced by the Wesleyan University Shapiro Center for Writing. It's hosted by me, Anna Cheltbate, and was created by Anna Cheltbate, Amy Bloom, and Stephanie Weiner. Our theme music is Let Me Make It Clear by Professor Jay Hogard from his album Harlem Hieroglyphs. Special thanks to our guests, Fred Cohen and Isaac Thorman, for appearing on this episode. Thanks again to our listeners, and be sure to tune in next time.